Scottish TV. Um, we're really pleased to have um, Kate Wales with us tonight. Kate's a colleague of mine and she's going to be talking to us about the role of restorative clinical supervision. Um, and we're talking about that specifically in a prison health injustice context. But first of all, before Kate introduces herself, we'll go over to Nikki. We'll just say a few words about how you can join in tonight. Okay, Absolutely. Nikki? Hello. We're going to be talking about a lot of subjects that I think you're going to find very interesting, very useful. So please feel free to join in. If you want to contact us via Twitter, just use the hashtag MHTV um, and I'll be keeping an eye out and so will Dave and we'll gather your questions together. If you're watching on the Facebook live feed, please feel free to comment, ask questions. Um, we really want to hear from you. So do get involved tonight. Thank you. Vanessa? Thank you. Okay. So yeah, so as I said, tonight we're going to be talking about clinical supervision and the role of the professional nurse advocate in the health and justice setting. So Kate, we'll go over to you if that's okay just yeah. to introduce yourself to everyone and say a few words about your work at the moment. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks, Nikki. Um, yep, yeah, so um, I'm a registered nurse by background um, and I completed the professional nurse advocacy course in June last year. Um, so in May this year, I was seconded into um, a six-month project role. Um, my brief was to um, embed positive, um, a positive supervision culture across health injustice um, and implement the role of the professional nurse advocate as well. So I think it's important to say that within the Practice Plus group, we currently have 48 prisons and two immigration removal sites. So it's, so it's quite a big um, site nationally. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was so when I was looking at implementing the project, um, this isn't just nurses. It's looking at implementing clinical supervision across all disciplines, um, which is multidisciplinary. Multidisciplinary. Um, the project's broken down into three phases. So phase one was scoping out, so really looking and understanding what supervision looks like at the moment currently. What are the barriers? What are the facilitators to effective supervision? Clinical supervision. Uh, phase two is looking at culture change and implementing um, supervision and the role of professional nurse advocate. And then phase three is evaluating the project, um, seeing what works, what didn't work and learning from our lessons. Mm, that sounds really interesting. So um, tell us a little bit about the professional nurse advocate course for people who might be listening and might not know much about it. Yeah, so I had a really positive experience when I did um, my professional nurse advocate course. Um, so I did it at um, Northampton University last uh, June. It's a 10 week master's um, level seven accredited course. Um, so the professional nurse advocate role um, is a leadership and advocacy role and they deploy a model called something called the um, A-Equip model, which is, which is advocating for education and quality improvement. So the role really focuses on uh, providing support um, to the individual's um, health and well-being, um, mm -hmm. guiding and supporting them through education and training. And then the really exciting element of, of the model is um, working toward the quality, to, towards quality improvement. So it's very much focused on um, Proctor's reflective model. Um, however, there's an additional element to element to that which is a supporting a quality improvement project within the organization yeah it's obviously really important isn't it in the um in the setting that we are working um 
Sorry, yeah. there, it is. There's an element to that of which is the restorative practice. Yeah. Um, which for me, um, as a registered nurse, I've always been a reflector um, and reflecting, reflecting, reflecting upon my practice. However, completing the course just led me down a di completely different route and allowed me to really think about supervision and actually the restorative approach. And it really focuses on uh, the staff's um, individual needs, what they want, um, mm -hmm. improving their health and well-being and building upon their resilience and especially more so within health injustice they're faced with such difficult challenging situations that the restorative approach um, I personally think is um, the right way to move forward within health injustice. Yeah so when you say the restorative approach are you talking more about looking at the impact of um, situations on people's well-being as well? Yeah and being able to talk about that in a supervision environment. Yeah, so it's really looking at the emotional needs of, of, yeah. of the staff. So it's very much um, an employee-led model. Um, yeah. So it really focuses on their health and well-being and to equip them with the tools and the techniques to kind of build upon their resilience and professional and personal development as well. Yeah, and would that be um, done in a group context or an individual context or are there different types of approaches? So I'm really, I think not one size fits all. Yeah. Um, and, so, and especially when I was doing the grounding work um, with starting the project, um, yeah. I've held lots of focus groups and, and sent a survey out across um, health injustice. Mm -hmm. um, and what was really apparent is that people like a different variety of models so some people really flourish in a one-to-one -one situation some people prefer prefer the group work some people prefer peer-to-peer -peer. and obviously there's benefits and obviously challenges to each of them so um it's a variety of different models in which whatever the individual chooses to partake in mm, that's really interesting um nikki any comments from social media at this point or from yourself? No, should we come? Should we come back to you in a minute? Yeah, sorry, I was pressing the wrong button to unmute. What an amateur <laughs> after all this time. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to tweet and answer questions at the same time. I do have one question so far. Um, and it's from somebody who's only ever worked in the community. So I guess you're a, you're a student nurse. Thank you very much. It's good, it's good that you joined in. And, and what she's asking for, I think, is a little bit of clarity around what's special about the type of, of area you're working in. So um, she's, she's, she's wanting to know a little bit more about what's particular about that, because I think uh, the comment she's made is that it's, it's tough all over. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. if you could um, give that information, that'd be really helpful. Some context for it. Oh, you're on mute now as well, Kate. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> busy technology. Right. Um, so, I absolutely agree. There are challenges in all all different um, in all different areas um, across nursing. I think what's um, for me, obviously, experience working experience working as a nurse within health injustice. Um, our nurses are exposed to emotional labor in terms of they work in really emotionally challenging environments um, and there's elements of potentially compassion fatigue the malignant alienation because they're exposed to really vulnerable a really vulnerable patient group um, mm -hmm. where there's um, high um, self-harm 
there's, there's trauma, um, and actually that can really impact on an individual. Um, there's also the enablement issue. So you've got the, the challenge of enablement with, with accessing the patient versus um, the nurse's professional accountability, which mm. obviously then takes us down the lines of moral injury and, and the quality of care that the patient receives. So we know as nurses sometimes not having access to the patient and sometimes we know that what, what is right, but actually we don't always do the right thing because of then enablement and challengement issues. And can I we think, stop just for a second? Yeah, just go back a tiny bit because I can see I can see this lighting up. <laughs> um, so for start off, you're talking a bit about moral injury. Could you just unpack that a little bit and we, we'll, we'll go through to the terms maybe so people can see. Yeah, so moral, moral injury, in, mm. in, I suppose in a simplistic term, is that when we know morally and professionally what, what's right, but actually when we're faced with challenging situations and the vulnerability of patients, and one of the examples I use is around the enablement issues and access to the patients, um, we don't always act in the right way or we might not say the right things because we're exposed to challenge and trauma within the environment that we work in. Yeah, I think as well, um, what's important for people who haven't worked in prisons to understand is that it's not like when you work on an inpatient ward when there's nurses there with the patients all the time. And, and as Kate says, there's an access issue that in an acute ward, um, you would have access to patients, you would work on a shift with people in a prison, the health teams very much a guest in the prison services environment so it's a completely different context yeah. so it's about kind of often seeing patients by appointment it's not like just being able to pop in and say hello you're influenced by things like um the prison bringing people over to healthcare at certain times of day and then them having to leave at a certain time because it's part of the regime for them to go back at that time so there's all kinds of other complexities and I think for me as well as a mental health nurse um, of 20 odd years uh, you know we've always been if there's a critical incident you're usually the first in there but in a prison that's not necessarily the case the prison it'll be the prison officers who are usually the first in there and then we're called over so we're very much part of part of a, a broader team rather than the healthcare team leading the situation that's yeah. how I see it anyway that's really helpful yeah so yeah so really the potential for moral injury is is a totally different context I mm. think to work in outside a prison environment like it says we know mm. that it's challenging in every environment but I think there are like really unique challenges to work mm. in the health and justice setting mm -hmm. and also and Kate's mentioned the, the level of trauma um in the health and justice se setting is often quite extreme as well and you know for nurses who are exposed to that constantly and that becomes very much the norm mm -hmm. um, so i think yeah i mean at this point it might be interesting to talk a little bit about compassion fatigue as well because i think that's an issue not just in health and justice but across the health service but i think it really links to this particular conversation doesn't it mm. And I think we know, like you said, Vanessa, um, the staff working, working within health injustice are exposed to sometimes really emotional, really traumatic, challenging situations. And if that was to continue on a regular basis without any form of supervision or support for that individual, then obviously that's when staff start to burn out 
um, you see the compassion fatigue come in, they're tired. And I think that's why the restorative element really helps with that because it really opens up that flexible, open, honest, confidential approach to supporting that individual. Um, so in terms of compassion fatigue, that's something more so now post COVID because we had really high incidences of um, positive COVID patients within, within health injustice. And actually we really struggled accessing resources and things like that within the organization, which really led to staff being really tired and a large proportion burn out. Yeah, yeah. So do you think, um, I mean, I suppose this is very individual, but I wonder if there's a link between kind of people burning out and being less willing maybe to access supervision at that point that maybe we need to um, have a supervision culture much, much earlier than that. Because once people burn out, that's when people's sort of emotions can become more blunt. Um, their kind of emotional responses are very different. Yeah, I, I agree. I think organisationally, it's got to be a culture change. There's got to be a shift in terms of um, it's my right to have supervision mm -hmm. um, and it's the right thing to do to look after our staff. staff. So, And we know that actually research has shown and, and living, living and working within health injustice that actually supervision or clinical supervision is probably one of the first things that gets mm -hmm. dropped from the diary when there's an incident or there's high workload levels and, it, and it's not prioritized and that's the culture shift and the culture change that I really want to try to improve is that we need staff to access this and, and we talk about high turnover and recruitment and retention but if our staff are working environments that that are hard and they're constantly being challenged and they're not happy to come to work Yes. Uh, we're going to see continuously the high turnover. So we've got to make our workplace a nice place for people to come to want to work. And supervision is a is a key element of that. Yeah, I think that's that's really important because I think we focus a lot as well, don't we, um, culturally in the NHS full stop around um, the people who are off sick. But actually, it's often the people who continue working when they probably should be off, that we should be reaching out to and offering some support. Yeah, and the restorative approach allows for that. So the restorative supervision work can work with staff that maybe have been on long-term sick and starting to do a phased approach and coming back to work um, to start to kind of build upon their, their skills as well. So there's so mm -hmm. many different elements and yeah. dynamics um, yeah. that actually um, you can tap so it's not just about reflecting upon someone's practice but also there's yeah. other elements to restorative supervision and the role of the professional nurse advocate that can that can support with yeah 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 it's interesting Nikki any more questions I know you've got your head down there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got a question well it's not really a question it's more of a cry for help by the sound of it it's <laughs> that, um, uh, what is malignant alienation and then three question marks and a face. <laughs> so I'll take make of that what you will. <laughs> so I'll answer that first, then, and Vanessa, I'm sure you'll have a, another interpretation because of your knowledge. So, um, <laughs> no question. <laughs> um, malignant, malignant alienation um, is something where um, 
so for example, within, within health and justice, as we've spoken about, we're exposed to um, really vulnerable patients and really high challenging, demanding situations. And actually what you find sometimes is that the relationship between the patient and the professional can sometimes, um, that therapeutic relationship can sometimes break down. And actually what you see is the, is the professional acting probably not as professional or in a professional way that you would expect expect to see because of the demands of the environment or what they've potentially been exposed to um, and and that's how and that's what how I interpret malignant alienation yeah so that's yeah I mean I, I agree. explain that right? yeah yeah absolutely and I think within um, the sort of supervision context how would you handle that because I think that traditionally certainly in mental health there's been a tendency that when somebody's struggling to work with a particular person, like they're pushing their buttons, it's having a, an impact in terms of how they're behaving, as you've just described, that people, you know, change key workers and things and people distance themselves, nurses, from working with someone who's quite difficult. So within this context, would that be a change of focus to more kind of looking at the issue and how it's impacting on the person? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So from a restorative approach, like you said, it would be how it's impacting on the individual. So how does it bring them to, the, to that situation? And obviously, there's lots of different tools and techniques that I would do as a, as a supervisor with that individual. Um, certain things like the stress bucket, bucket, talking through that. So, so what are their triggers? Why? What's making them feel and act in that way? So my focus would be on the individual and what's brought them to that point. Yeah, it seems really relevant as well, doesn't it, in a health and justice setting? Because I know I sometimes get um, queries and questions from students about um, how how do you work with somebody who's committed a serious crime and still maintain a compassionate approach? And I think, you know, what you're talking about there answers some of that question, really, doesn't it? Yeah, I think what's particularly distressing about it is people go into nursing to, to help people there's very few people that come into nursing with an intent to be the person that sometimes we end up as mm, yeah. because we're tired because we're overwhelmed because the things that we were taught to cope and manage are just completely overwhelmed by the circumstances we find ourselves in i think covid has brought that on a on most nurses in one one, one area or another but i think there are specific issues as well in terms of the type of work and the type of trauma that the nurses you're discussing are are exposed to and I think as well one of the things we were talking about just a bit off camera which is always annoying I think <laughs> to talk about your best stuff off camera but there's this stuff around you know there are certain types of nursing that are more visible or more heartwarming you know so yeah. people will love a, love a children's nurse they'll love you know somebody who is um you know frontline nurse or dressed as a nurse or looks like a nurse but for the sorts of jobs that are slightly hidden or working with populations who are discriminated against or for some reason come across as less sympathetic to the public those nurses get kind of like a reflected stigma as well yeah I wonder if you've got any thoughts on that yeah, well, we, like you said, we were talking about it off camera, and I suppose the um, example that I, I spoke about was kind of clapping for the NHS staff, and we had a massive cohort of not just nurses, but allied health professionals that were working within the prisons, that were working with, you know, lack of PPE, all the things that the NHS were, were, were working with and the challenges they faced, but it was almost like they were a forgotten cohort, um, because people unfortunately don't really understand 
nurses working within health injustice and the, and the challenges that they face. And this is why today is really great because it, it gets us talking about that and raising the awareness of, mm. of the role of, of staff working within health injustice. Yeah. Well, an epic question for you if you want to try it. Oh, no. <laughs> well, oh. What do you what do you do? Someone has asked. In what do I do? What do nurses do in prison? Yeah. Oh wow. So mm-hmm. this is actually, I can answer this. So really, um, people don't understand the role of a prison nurse. And actually, mm. it's so complex. You mm. are so skilled um, because you are, and what people, um, I suppose, need to understand is in a hospital setting, you're supported by a team of medics that say when you have um, a cardiac arrest, you all run to it. And actually, you've got a real team of medics around you that support one another. If you have that situation in in a prison, you're quite often on your own and you're running to that incident and you don't know what you're going to face. And I've been in that situation. I've turned up and it's it's scary when you're on your own and having to deal with that. So prison nurses, um, they have triage skills. They have um, emergency response skills. um, You are assessing patients when they come in from from off the streets, direct from courts. Um, they they encompass a whole load of skills and not only um, we're talking about primary care nurses within health injustice it's multidisciplinary so you've got mental health nurses primary care nurses substance misuse nurses and we've got allied health professionals and that's we've got GPs psychiatrists psychologists so a really complex Mm. um, multi-professional working group do you agree with that Vanessa yeah and I think when I first worked in health and justice what really struck me was that kind of multidisciplinary approach and I know we talk about that you know across healthcare but um kind of having a meeting at lunchtime where you have a handover and you've got not just other mental health nurses but you've got adult nurses there GPs pharmacy um psychiatrists perhaps and you can have a really holistic discussion about a person. And I think that is where health injustice nursing does shine compared to nursing in other parts of the healthcare system, having yeah. that opportunity. And of course, that's necessary because we're working with the most complex patients, obviously, who you know usually experience the most inequality and um, have those sort of comorbid physical and mental health issues. But I think... Um, yeah the practice of being able to bring everyone together is I think very different to to anywhere else that I've ever ever worked but of course as Kate says it's also very challenging and there's that sort of collapse of primary care secondary care boundaries isn't there in in prison so you're often um you know from a mental health point of view you're assessing somebody and um they either sit within, they would normally sit within primary care. You might have that person on your caseload, but equally you might have someone who's quite unwell mentally and you'll also be supporting that person as well. And often working with people who are quite unwell, who need to be in hospital and um, until we can get them into hospital, having to manage the person and support them in a prison environment, which is is quite complex. So, yeah. We've got um, Jadrek saying, I agree with you, Kate. So that's good. <laughs> and nice. hello to uh, Victorious. Um, who else is there? Alfonso and some of the other regulars. So it's very lovely to see you back again. No hmm. Um I guess it would be really helpful to understand how um, restorative supervision is different from maybe the other types of supervision as well, because some people haven't had any supervision. So it's all a bit of a. 
Yeah. So, um, so clinical, so clinical supervision tends, from my, this is my experience, tends to be very much led by um, the supervisor, and it's very much a focus on a particular clinical incident, and and you talk about potentially, or you reflect upon something probably that maybe the supervisor. Um, wants to talk about potentially it's quite structured and it and it's quite prescriptive as well um so so where that there or differs to restorative with the restorative approach it's very much um a focus on the individual's um health and well-being and equipping when equipping them with the tools and techniques to be able to um deal with certain situations for for example um, you've then also got the managerial supervision that is obviously very much focused on the per person's um, professional development so things around career development um, talking about annual leave and appraisal yeah. um, so so obviously that and that's one of the challenges as well that um, staff don't understand always the difference between managerial and clinical supervision and there's a real lack of um, misconception of what the two are so often people will go into go into a supervision session and not understand the purpose of, of why they're there and that I think that's one of the barriers um, not not just within health and justice but um, speaking to other um, other staff external to practice plus group is that the skills of the supervisor and the supervisee understanding what the supervision session is about can um, sometimes be a barrier to an effective supervision session because staff don't understand what, what they're doing. Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, <clears throat> something that's just struck me really now is, um, you know, as a mental health nurse, we've, we're kind of trained and we work in quite a psychologically informed way, but other branches of nursing haven't had that training around being more sort of psychological. So I was just thinking in, um, in a prison context, as we say, where you might be the, the first professional on the scene to work with that person who's distressed or um, as an adult nurse, you know, for example, you know, wound care nurse, building up a really close relationship with someone. So perhaps with a restorative approach as well, it's encouraging nurses to work in a more sort of psychologically focused way with patients which I also think helps that mental health reach that it doesn't just need to be mental health nurses that do mental health, that, no. you know, in the same way that mental health nurses need to have physical health skills. Yeah, and the restorative approach will, would be a real focus on the emotional needs. So, so, so first of all, for example, with a, the, the way I would start a restorative session is a grounding technique and that's that, that can be done in a variety of forms it yeah. could be simply the open question of how are you which yeah. opens up to, to lots of you know people can interpret that really differently or there's another technique where you can kind of just get the person to really relax and kind of really think about the surroundings their smells the sounds and it really brings that person down and gets them to relax which then hopefully Will, will lead to a, pro a productive restorative session for that individual. Um, and it's a real positive way, like you said, Vanessa, of reducing that individual's stress. Um, yeah. And I think like you said, where I think there's been uh, a history of mental health nurses do this really well and psychologists. Yeah. And yeah. I think this opens us up 
to mm. a lot of opportunity across the organization and it doesn't just sit with mental health nurses yeah, my approach right. is that it will be a multi-professional model so yeah. we've got paramedics we'll have occupational therapists we'll have gps engaged with it so it's not it doesn't just sit with the mental health teams yeah yeah it can be a, a um a belief as well rather than the reality sometimes for mental health nurses are much better at doing it for other people than they are about realizing it for themselves yeah and i think that the, what you were talking about about grounding is really important mm -hmm. because one of the things i've noticed in my career is the amount of times where you really um disassociate from yourself when a situation is really stressful and traumatic you don't physically process it you know then we, yeah. we hear colleagues who are um exhausted who can't sleep who are sort of experiencing like unspecified pain anxiety and it's a lot to do with the fact that you know that a lot of the supervision on offer it just isn't conducive it's not flexible enough for yeah. people's needs i wonder if you have any thoughts about the importance of flexibility and and, and personalization and supervision yeah. so so the approach so my vision is that it will be a, a clinical supervision framework that's underpinned by restorative um, supervision and ultimately ultimately that will be a multi-professional model that is flexible in its approach so for example we have a serious incident that our staff are exposed to then there will be available restorative supervision for that individual straight away mm. not all individuals work like that they have to process it think about it so that could be a more planned structured restorative supervision um and, and what I do before the restorative supervision is send out um, an emotional um, trigger form to, to staff and it gets the, it, just some questions. And I don't want to see it. I, I would never ask to see it, but the staff would, it makes them think about where they're at at the moment. And actually they can bring that to the session if they want or they, or they don't have to, but it's almost gets them thinking about where they are at the moment and their emotional needs as well so I so like you said Nikki I want it to be a, fl a flexible approach because at the moment what we see is every six to eight weeks we must have supervision and yeah. it's done or we're, we're told in, in certain situations that this is our supervisor and it's so important that we have a really good therapeutic trusting relationship with our supervisor otherwise you're never going to be honest and you're never going to open up and trust that person so it's absolutely got to be a flexible approach and that's a two-way relationship both with the supervisor and the supervisor mm, that's interesting questions that's all right um, Emma Dylan, Dylan says that sounds great, Kate. Getting a lot of love, Kate, for that tonight. <laughs> a lot of affirmation. She's been recording. Oh, Emma Dylan was my module leader. Back. She was yeah. the module leader at Northampton University, and she was amazing. Ah, well, that's <laughs> nice. Hello. Um, mm. Alfonso says, um, is there a limit on who should have clin clinical supervision? Is it mainly for senior nurses? Um, and Nikki Simbani has asked, um, I think we agree that clinical supervision is still not understood because to me, clinical supervision should have the restorative part and it should be supervisory left, which is absolutely yeah. what we're saying. Um, uh, Adrian uh, Jugdor saying, um, um, clinical supervision is only as good as the supervisor, which is an interesting point. And I guess if we don't invest in supervisors, they're always gonna have this issue. I found the yeah. better ones are often non-health related because they can ask questions in a way that make you rethink your approach. Um, they don't understand the health related assumptions. And when you need to explain, that actually helps you figure out yourself think a little bit as well mm. so that's really really helpful what's interesting is, is the comment around it's only as good as, as the supervisor and interestingly at the start of the project i sent out a survey and there was a really strong theme that one of the barriers to effective supervision was the the skills of the supervisor 
and and that's where um we need to go back to looking at what the skills of the supervisor are they equipped with the with the tools and techniques to be able to support that individual as well so um that's something that will be a focus for me so that's yeah. really important that was going to be my next question actually because we've talked a lot about the actual supervision but how are we going to skill up people to be supervisors how do we yes. the sort of um, professional nurse advocate yeah um, so um, my vision, like I mentioned, would be having a strong clinical supervision framework underpinned by the restorative approach, which is then complemented by the current clinical supervisors and the professional nurse advocacy, so the PNAs as well. So what I want to do is upskill and train um, the different staff within the regions around restorative resilient supervision so they're then equipped with the skills and tools and techniques to be able to deliver effective sessions Um, but that will be complemented and supported by the role of the professional nurse advocates within each of the regions yeah so do you think that'll be um multidisciplinary presumably multidisciplinary um yeah yeah so my so one of the barriers at the moment is that we focus on nurses and and we have a a large cohort of staff that aren't accessing supervision because we focus on on nursing staff Um, Mm and so my my model needs to be multi-professional and and multidisciplinary yeah I agree and I think having some multidisciplinary supervisors might help with that mightn't it as well it gets you thinking in a different way as well, doesn't it? You yeah. know, you're supervised potentially, me maybe by um, a paramedic, it's just an example. They think about things differently. They may have a different way of thinking about things, yeah. different skills. So if it can be multi-professional, it allows us to develop both personally and professionally. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Another thing I was thinking about was um, documentation, because that's one of the things people always worry about, isn't it? oh, if I talk about this in supervision, it's going to be documented and it's going to get back to my manager and I'm going to get into trouble. So how how will you overcome that? So restorative supervision, you don't have to document anything. You don't have to document it. Obviously, um, for the organisation that I work in, there will need to be an element of um, capturing the number of sessions that we hold uh, for restorative supervision. And also that would have to be fed back to NHS England as well as part of the professional nurse advocacy role. so what my current PNAs are doing um, are that they will complete an evaluation form. They will complete um, a form once they've done the super supervision, both them and the supervising. It will just detail nothing confidential, but the themes. Um, and that will provide me with the qualitative data of how well the project's going as well. And, mm-hmm. and maybe what we need, what we're learning from it as well. So the good thing about restorative supervision, there isn't a requirement that we, that we record anything yeah that's good there is, there is the expectation at the beginning of the session that you have almost a, an agreement a contract you know in terms of um, if there was anything of any risk that potentially you might need to escalate then yeah. that's discussed and, and kind of yeah you know kind of what what's expected and what's not expected um so like an informal contract but there's nothing that needs to be written down yeah and I'm assuming, so you tell me if I'm right, that the clinical supervisors will get supervision from the PNAs and the PNAs presumably are part of a wider network of yes. PNAs. Is that right? So my vision is that the clinical supervisors will have support from the professional nurse advocates. So we've currently got 25 within health injustice. Amazing, um, isn't it? We've um, 
which are spread out nationally. Yeah, um, yeah we've got higher numbers than other organisations, which mm. is really positive. And obviously, we're just hoping, fingers crossed, to securing more places because we've had lots of other interest. And yeah. um, so, obviously, to try to get to the one to 20 ratio as well that we want to get at the end of the three years. Yeah. The clinical supervisors will be supported by the professional nurse advocates and then the professional nurse advocates can then tap into the regional resources and myself um, for supervision as well. Yeah, that's great. And um, for anyone watching who might now be interested in being a professional nurse advocate, how would they um, how would they go about inquiring into that? Yeah. So there's lots of really great information on the um, I think it's the England ac what is it england or nhs website i think yeah, yeah yeah so if you just type in professional nurse advocate there's lots of information and resources on there really a good wealth of information um also if um staff can access the e-learning for health um website and there is a free module on there um which staff can access um if they're thinking about doing the course that talks about um, the role of professional nurse advocate, the AE quit model, which will um, obviously guide them and help them if they want yeah. to, to take part in the course as well. There's also, which is an amazing resource, the NHS Futures platform that staff can access. Um, and on there is a discussion board, the different regional PNAs, um, and a wealth of information and resources that staff can download and access as well. So there's lots of information out there should staff or if they're thinking about yeah. doing the course. Yeah. yeah. Really helpful. Hannah Davis has yeah. just almost asked that question. <laughs> so is there a structured framework for clinical supervisors to guide their uh, sessions to ensure certain topics or questions are covered? So there's lots of different frameworks out there um, and, and models that staff can use. And, and there's prompts. If Even if you literally go onto Google and you can type in clinical supervision frameworks, clinical supervision model, honestly, my, my brain was overloaded when I started this project. <laughs> There's so much information out there. And actually, there isn't one specific definition of clinical supervision. Researchers, there's so, there's so many different, when I was just trying to get one definition of it, but there's so much research out there that if you just Google it, um, you can you can find your way around the internet. And, and there's lots of different kind of frameworks and models that, that people can use should they want to. Yeah. Brilliant. Anything else? I'm just conscious we're coming to the last six minutes already. It's flown, hasn't it? I mean, we always have got one question that's coming, yeah, if that's all right. right. Yes, please. So yeah. Where did PNAs come from? I've never heard of them. So, well, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> I won't say your name. <laughs> so, it, so the professional nurse advocacy role is, has been running for just over a year now, year and a half now. Um, and it was introduced, or Ruth May, the chief nursing officer, introduced it um, as a thank you almost to the nurses during COVID and post-COVID mm -hmm. um, because they were obviously faced with challenging situations, demanding situations and adversity, that it was brought in as almost a thank you um, as a way of supporting our staff and supporting their health and well-being um, during it and post-COVID as well. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and is, is that it, Nikki, for you? We've tweeted all, all the things that you've mentioned. We've tweeted out under the hashtag MHTV as we've gone along. Um, and if anybody else wants to join in with the resources they've got that are helpful, please just use the hashtag as well so we can find them. Thank you very much. And um, Kate, um, we're just in the last five minutes. So are there any particular points that um, we might have missed that you'd like to get across tonight? 
No, I, I think this has been a really good opportunity to not only raise the profile of, of the projects that I'm doing, but the role of the PNA, but mm. also to talk about um, nursing within health injustice as well, yeah. um, because it's a really exciting and challenging um, kind of situation to work in. But um, I love it. It's not for everyone. I absolutely love working with it within the prisons. And I, I think to um, raise the awareness and the profile of that is, um, is, is a positive opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, because I think one of the difficulties is people just don't go into prison settings. So they don't get to see what nursing is. And people have got a lot of preconceived ideas about what it's like in a prison um kind of understanding the context of why people commit a crime which is often related to trauma and um <clears throat> inequality and i think for me once i actually ventured into a prison and saw um the kind of you know context of it and understood what i could do and how i could help people in a prison environment you know like you say kate i love it as well um yeah. and i kind of when i went to work there i thought god why haven't i worked here earlier in my career as well actually I think if you're committed to social justice especially it's the place to be isn't it really yeah I have a real passion for um kind of the patient voice letting them have in the say but patient safety and, and making sure that patients um get the right quality of care um because they are our patients yeah yeah I agree I think we should possibly, I know Nick is smiling at me because she knows I always get health and justice in whenever I can. <laughs> I like that though, it's important. Yeah. yeah, yeah, well I like to advocate for it, but I do think um, maybe we need to have a health and justice focused session just talking about health and justice, so we might invite you back for that, Kate, if you're interested. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, any more questions? Well, on just to yeah. thank everybody who's joined in, really appreciate that, um, and to say good night. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you then. Thank Good, you. Night, Good night all. Thank you.